Cause we got the alternative energy right. free autonomy And welcome to the Radioactive Show Produced at the studios of 3CR Melbourne And heard nationally on the Community Radio Network On this week's Radioactive Show We need to stand up to these people So let's go back home, gather momentum Build on people power and not nuclear power And keep uranium in the ground where it belongs Good morning and welcome to this week's Radioactive Show. This week there's a bit of a dual focus. Uh, Firstly, we'll be hearing from Barbara Shaw, co-chair of the Australian Nuclear Free Alliance. In mid-April, about a month ago, co-chair of the Australian Nuclear Free Alliance, Barb Shaw, and Peter Watts went to Canada to go to the World Uranium Symposium in Quebec. We'll be hearing a speech that Barb Shaw gave on the third day of the symposium, a panel discussion on human and Indigenous rights versus the nuclear fuel chain. And in the second half of the show, we'll be hearing about reflections from people who've been involved in Friends of the Earth. Friends of the Earth has been campaigning against the nuclear industry and promoting safer solutions for 40 years. Uh, It celebrated its 40th birthday recently. Well, actually, the 40th was last year, but there was so much campaign work to do, there wasn't time for a celebratory break. So we're hearing from Jim Green and John Langer. They did an interview on Dirt Radio a couple of weeks ago, talking about past campaigns and the qualities that make Friends of the Earth stand out in the landscape of environmental groups. We'll also be hearing a couple of short interviews with Mia Pepper and Cat Beaton, long-time anti-nuclear campaigners. But first, Barb Shaw at the World Uranium Symposium giving a speech about Indigenous rights versus the nuclear fuel chain. I come from a first world country, a multicultural society. My country was colonised by the British. Over the last few hundred years, explorers came through, through our land opening up Australia for development, whilst killing our people, placing them in missions, reserves and settlements. To this day, explorers still come through our country, our land for minerals. In the last few days, we have learnt about the good, the bad, the ugly side effects of uranium mining and the nuclear industry. If we stop for a minute and just to think about what we've learnt over history and the historical events associated with uranium mining and the nuclear industry. It scares me because I've only been in the game for seven years. I'm no academic. I speak from the heart and live on my country. Um, Mother Earth was created for all of us and we were created to look after her. From the dawn of creation, to our ancestors. We got the birthright as caretakers, custodians and protectors to keep her safe. Our people have always been at the forefront of their struggles to protect their country. There are many nations within the Australian nation. Most people say Australia is a lucky country, the land of opportunity. Our people um, prefer to differ because we know it's not. Our people have always, sorry, our people have 
been on their lands and territories for over 60,000 years. The uranium and nuclear industry has only been in and around Australia for the last, or since 1950s. Our people have been and still are the main opposition against uranium mining and the nuclear industry. The heads of states, our governments, and policy developers have always and continue to make policies that affect our people and to keep our people oppressed. Their laws and policies change all the time to benefit them and not us. But for our people, our laws don't change because it's the law of the land that we belong to. Heads of states are making backdoor deals with other countries and approving mining applications to state claim for mining exploration and operations on our lands. All peoples as a collective need to start talking up and standing strong together against the uranium and nuclear industry across the world to save our mother and to save humanity. Let's start pointing the finger at the heads of states for their bad practice in developing policies because there is no such thing as best practice for the uranium and nuclear industry. I don't want to be a preacher preaching to the converted, but seriously, the non-Indigenous peoples that live in our countries needs to start using and quoting from the United Nations Declaration on the rights of Indigenous peoples to start supporting the Indigenous or First Nations peoples' fight and struggles against the heads of state. September 13, 2007, the United Nations General Assembly endorsed and adopted the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. But unfortunately, Australia, where I come from, was one of four countries whom did not, whom did not support it, but now supports it in principle. Um, the United Nations Declaration can be used as a tool and a guideline for our people to enforce and exercise our rights as Indigenous peoples. We also can use the United Nations treaties and conventions by keeping our heads of states accountable for their actions. A clear example of um, what's been going on, the Mirapipa in the top end of where I live in my state have now taken their fight to the United Nations. So they've actually taken their fight to an international arena because we know that we don't have friends in our own backyard. These include the rights under the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, the International Convention on Civil and Political Rights, the International Convention on Economic, Economic Social and Cultural Rights and the ILO um, Convention 169. So we do stand up for our country, but it's the matter of where we take our fight. Our government wants to expand their mine and go underground, but they're standing up and saying no. Geoffrey Lee of the Kungara Nation 
this is neighbouring country to here. Our government, so our heads of state, has been humbugging, going, trying to make deals with other people, but he's just saying no. So, no uranium mining in his country. And I'll use a quote from him as well. When you dig a hole in my country, you are killing me. I don't worry about money at all. So, clearly, Jeffrey Lee can see that money does not worry him. He'd prefer to live off his land, and the land makes us richer. If you've just tuned in, you're listening to The Radioactive Show and you're currently hearing a speech given by Barbara Shaw, co-chair of the Australian Nuclear Free Alliance, that was given a month ago at the World Uranium Symposium in Quebec, Canada. I guess now the situation with Australia, our head of state, encouraged by, I guess, back home I would say puppets to the government, believe that... Australia could be the world's international waste dump site. I live on the oldest beach in the world and the driest, but I still go out and walk and live on my country. I still go out and hunt on my country. The heads of state did not come knocking on my door and asking me if I would go in partnership to sell off uranium to other countries. He did not come and see me and have a cup of tea with me on my country, eat my bush food, and ask me if I wanted a nuclear waste dump on my country. So looking at and hearing about what's been going on across the world, We need to stand up to these people. So let's go back home, gather momentum, build on people power and not nuclear power, put people before profit, and keep uranium in the ground where it belongs. Thank you. You're listening to The Radioactive Show and you just heard from Barbara Shaw, co-chair of the Australian Nuclear Free Alliance. Uh, That was a speech she gave in Quebec City, Canada for the World Uranium Symposium. The panel discussion was on human and Indigenous rights versus the nuclear fuel chain. From April 14 to 16 this year, communities from all over the world gathered in Quebec City, Canada for the World Uranium Symposium. The symposium addressed a broad range of issues related to the nuclear fuel chain, including uranium mining, radioactive waste, Aboriginal rights and nuclear weapons proliferation. The Australian Nuclear Free Alliance was invited to contribute stories of nuclear resistance and the impact of the nuclear industry on Aboriginal communities in Australia. Bob Shaw and Peter Watts, co-chairs of the Australian Nuclear Free Alliance, both travelled to Quebec City for this symposium. If you'd like to see some of the blog updates from the World Uranium Symposium, as well as videos of Peter Watts and Barb Shaw giving speeches, you can go to ampha.org.au forward slash tour 2015 2. That's ampha.org.au forward slash tour 2015 2. For many people in Australia who are interested in helping the environment, they look to Friends of the Earth. Friends of the Earth has been campaigning against the nuclear industry and promoting safer solutions for 40 years. It recently celebrated its 40th birthday. And on this week's show, we'll be hearing an interview between 3CR's Dirt Radio presenter, John Langer, and FOE's national nuclear campaigner, Jim Green. 
Jim talks about past campaigns and the qualities that make Friends of the Earth stand out in the landscape of environmental groups in Australia. Jim Green gives us some insights and history into Friends of the Earth anti-nuclear campaigning of the last 40 years. Jim's a long-time national anti-nuclear campaigner with Friends of the Earth. He's got a background in public health and science and technology studies. He also happens to be the current editor of Foe's Foe's magazine, Chain Reaction, which, if you haven't seen it yet, has some really interesting articles on the history of Foe in Australia and some of their standout campaigns. Jim, hi. How are you this morning? Yeah, well, thanks, John. Good. And uh, congratulations. Uh, Well done for the current issue of of, um, uh, Chain Reaction. Look, I wanted to just start with something uh, that was in the magazine, which I got, have to say I didn't really know about, but maybe you could enlighten us a, li- a little bit. In the Chain Reaction Historical Overview, it lists 1974 as a pivotal year uh, for, uh, for campaigning and also a pivotal year for foe uh, in terms of meeting together. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, sure. Um, there were... Friends of the Earth groups established a bit earlier than 1974 on Adelaide University, for example, and one or two others, but 1974 was pivotal because that was the first national gathering of Friends of the Earth, and that took place on French Island in Victoria, which was the proposed site of a nuclear power reactor. Uh, So the nuclear issues have been central right from the start of uh, Friends of the Earth in Australia and all around the world, for that matter. And they continue to be. So there's just such a long history. I'm not sure how much you want to cover, but all those battles in the 1970s over nuclear power and into the 80s, the Roxby Downs uranium mine was such a massive battle then and into the 1990s with the successful struggle against Jabaluka and unsuccessful struggles against uh, other mines like Beverly in South Australia. I think uh, one of the things that I guess is interesting for me, and I have to say, I I I was living here. You you can hear from my accents. I'm not uh, I'm not originally from Australia, but seventy four. I don't remember the seventy four um, seventy four the proposal to set up a, a nuclear uh, reactor in uh, in Victoria. Well, there were lots of proposals around that time through the 50s and into the 70s they pretty much dried up into the 1980s but at various stages various state governments were planning to build nuclear power plants but uh, all of those plans came to nothing for one reason or another either because of public opposition or because the economics didn't make sense but I should also briefly mention the one serious national proposal for nuclear power in Australia and that was in the late 1960s when uh, John Gorton was the Prime Minister and he planned to build a a nuclear power reactor at Jervis Bay, which is uh, ACT land, but it's off the coast of New South Wales. And uh, the reason I think that's significant is that John Gorton later acknowledged that there was a hidden weapons agenda Mm -hmm. behind that plan for a nuclear power reactor at Jervis Bay. And uh, that's one of the main reasons why FOA has always campaigned against this industry, because whether you like it or not, the uh, supposedly peaceful nuclear power industry can easily be put to put to use building weapons of mass destruction. Yes, and uh, l- let me just take you to your own uh, biography in terms of foe. When was your first introduction to Friends of the Earth? Well, I came across Friends of the Earth during a uh, well, two campaigns really in the uh, late 1990s and into the 2000s. One was an 
unsuccessful campaign to stop uh, a new nuclear research reactor being built at Lucas Heights uh, in southern Sydney and another was a successful campaign and that was to stop nuclear waste being dumped on Aboriginal land in South Australia and Friends of the Earth was doing fantastic work then in all sorts of different ways but in particular a nuclear free waste campaign which was linking Lucas Heights to the proposed dump site on Aboriginal land in South Australia and that was a, an incredibly difficult campaign for foe and an awful lot of hard work, but it was also very creative and very successful and, and played a significant role in stopping that nuclear waste dump going ahead. So, You're saying about uh, South Australia. Now, my understanding is that there there is a revived plan for this kind of stuff. Yeah, that's right. The uh, South Australian Labor government has initiated a royal commission and... They're looking into expanding the state's role in the nuclear fuel cycle. At the moment, it's just uranium mining, so they're considering uranium enrichment and also nuclear power. And last but not least, they seem very keen on the idea of hosting an international high-level nuclear waste dump uh, as a revenue raiser. But um, Hmm. there's a long way to go with those debates. But the first public opinion poll found that uh, only one out of six South Australians want the state to become the world's hmm. nuclear waste dump. <laughs> okay, so they've got a big fight ahead of them, I think. <laughs> what? Where? Where are these ideas coming from? Is it simply? Uh, I mean, is it is it partly expedient? I know there's, uh, you know, there is uranium mining in Australia, but also uh, kind of political expedience as well. Yeah, the uh, manufacturing industries are in trouble in South Australia, so there's certainly con- some concern about the economy and some idea that you could uh, uh, that you could solve those problems, if only in part, through hmm. uranium enrichment, which is an economic non-starter, but something that is theoretically possible is importing high-level nuclear waste and turning a profit from that. But uh, just because they can turn a profit from it, it doesn't mean that it's a good idea or that it will be uh, politically acceptable in the, in the public domain. Something I was going to ask you about, just to go back to your discussion of the... Uh the connection that uh, Foe was able to make between Lucas Heights and the uh, dump in South Australia in, in terms of communities. This was sort of, I, I just turn it to uh, issues of communication. A lot of campaigning clearly has to do with communication and stuff. Was that a period when the internet for campaigning was 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 around? My, my sense is that the anti-nuclear campaigning for Foe was, is quite... Um, quite diverse, has a number of different centres around the country. The question I was going to ask you, because you're, you have been involved in it, how do you pull those communities together into, a, into a, I guess, a kind of a, a grouping that has solidarity? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, if you go back to uh, this South Australian nuclear waste dump campaign, then that was relatively early days for the internet and so on. And uh, I can remember my first ever phone call on a mobile phone. That was 2003. So, uh, yeah, it was a different era. But um, what Friends of the Earth was doing in those days was uh, very much old style. It was face-to-face meetings. So this nuclear freeways project involved countless trips along that transport corridor, which is 2,000 k's or thereabouts from Sydney to the uh, Hmm. centre of South Australia. And... That, that hard work was necessary and there's no way that uh, new age communications were going to get around those difficulties or the need for all that hard work because 
they had to get to know people in local communities and local towns across this transport corridor and to build up uh, the knowledge of those communities and to build up trust between environmentalists and and uh, rural towns where they'd never seen Friends of the Earth before. So there was no substitute for that hard work of getting out on that transport corridor on countless occasions and sleeping in swags on the side of the road and, and doing it uh, old style. Look, it's. Uh, it, I, I guess we could talk about this quite a lot, but I, it seems to me that Faux, one of the things that Friends of the Earth really excels at is that connection, making connections between communities and doing the hard yards, I guess you could say, um, actually spending time with people. Uh, there, there's a lot of debate these days about how how campaigning works, and I'm sure you've heard the term clicktivist, and, and there's lots of uh, petitions and so on that go come to me. I, I'm sure they come to you as well. But basically, you're, I guess what you're saying is suggesting is that the face-to-face work is is extremely central. Yeah, absolutely. So at the moment, uh, our main response to this South Australian Royal Commission is to help to organise a meeting which will take place in Port Augusta in a fortnight's time, and that's going to bring together as many Aboriginal people from across South Australia as possible in one location to have a good long talk over a couple of days about how to respond to this and yeah, there's absolutely no substitute whatsoever. I mean, especially when you're talking about remote Aboriginal communities, their access to the internet is either nil or very limited. Mm. And familiarity with a lot of these technologies is also pretty limited. So, yeah, there's there's no alternative whatsoever to, uh, to the face-to-face work. And um, just in terms of your... your um your career with uh, Friends of the Earth, again, just sort of pulling pulling a bit of history into it. <clears throat> what would you say was the, in terms of uh, challenges, what was the biggest challenge? What's been the biggest challenge for you in your campaign work? Well, it's highs and lows. You know, we've had some fantastic victories. The Jabaluka uranium victory was unbelievable, the South Australian dump victory, and we haven't mentioned it, but just last year, after eight years of really hard work, there was a massive victory with the Muckety traditional owners mm. um, uh, defeating the federal government's plan for a nuclear waste dump on their land in the Northern Territory. So those victories are what helps to sustain us. But on the flip side of that, we've had some really ugly losses as well. Lucas Heights, where we just worked incredibly hard and had a fantastic local c- campaign in southern Sydney. But uh, the, ha- the Howard Coalition government won four elections in a row and that killed us and so that reactor went ahead and Beverly uh, uranium mine in South Australia, that was also a really ugly defeat and very depressing and very divisive for the local Aboriginal community. Mm. Uh, so we've just got to learn to work our way through these defeats and uh, to stand up again and dust ourselves off and keep fighting. Is, do you think there's, uh, from, from when you first got involved to now, do you think, I'm not sure whether you can answer this question, but do you think there's been a shift of perspective or approach or recruiting methods that your campaigns have been using? Well, uh, not really. I I couldn't say I can point to any fundamental differences, but I have to say it's pretty hard, not just for the anti-nuclear movement, but for the broader environment movement and for social movements more generally. It's uh, getting more difficult to to build significant social movements against uh, environmental and social atrocities. Uh, but, you know, I think that worm will turn over a longer period of time. 
Mm. And, you know, for Friends of the Earth, I'm not familiar with the entire history over 40 years, but, you know, there have certainly been highs and lows and no guarantee whatsoever that an organisation could survive for 40 long years, especially a grassroots organisation that, that sustains itself on next to no income. So it is quite a remarkable achievement. And look, finally, you've actually sort of uh, foreshadowed my last question to you is, or the, one of the last ones is uh, the 40th birthday is coming up. And as you've just said, there's lots of environmental groups out there, um, some bigger, some smaller. What makes FOE, do you think, unique and gives it such staying power? Uh, well, I think uh, probably it's generosity, you might say. Like uh, there's a lot of competition with the environment movement and uh, some groups are after as much as they can get of, of limited funding that's available, either through public donations or government grants or whatsoever. But FOE's never had that approach. It's always been very uh, selfless mm-hmm. and hardworking and generous and and uh, happy to you know, acknowledge the contributions of many other groups in, in campaigns that we've worked on. So I think there's a general goodwill that arises from that approach over the years, and that probably more than anything has sustained the organisation for such a long period of time. Jim, it's been a pleasure talking to you, and what you've just said, I, I, I would uh, I would second that as well. That's been my experience, as, and yours is much longer than mine, but I think that gener- generosity of spirit and and uh, kind of inclusiveness as well, the ability to kind of bring people in. So thanks very much for today. And uh, talking to there to longtime anti-nuclear campaigner and coordinator Jim Green. A couple of other people who have been involved at Friends of the Earth's anti-nuclear campaigns are Kat Beaton and Mia Pepper. I was lucky to catch them both this week to give some short reflections on FOE. Um, I think I first came to Friends of the Earth um, as a volunteer interested in the nukes issues. So... Most of my time with Friends of the Earth has been around either the nuclear freeways campaign or um, efforts to stop the Muckety Waste Dump or around uranium mining issues. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I've done a few shifts in the kitchen, but probably spent a bit more time um, upstairs than I did downstairs. So what are, what are some of your fond memories now that Friends of the Earth has turned 40? What, what can you say about some of the anti-nuclear campaigns that have happened during your time there? I think something that always stood up um, stood out in my mind so much about FOE was no matter how far you went around Australia talking about nukes, everybody knew FOE. And um, I think that says a lot about the great work that was done in the 70s and 80s um, around such a big issue. Um, but I really loved it, travelling so far from home, from Melbourne, and people would smile when they'd hear Friends of the Earth or ask, hey, what's happening at Friends of the Earth? Or what about that FOE group? So I think that just says a lot about an organisation. Mm. Um, I think uh, I've got so many kind of fun memories about rad tours or about meetings, either really, really big meetings or sometimes really small meetings or sometimes the meetings that happened out in the street next to foe um, <laughs> instead of inside. But um, lots of very fond memories and um, really love spending time there. Such an inspiring and welcoming and open space. Awesome. Um, so if you had to pick like one memory, what would it be? I think it's such a fond, I have such a fond memory of watching the buses leave from Smith Street to go on the rad tour and all the boxes of soy milk and the boxes of food and the people there and seeing these um, yeah, busloads of people heading off on a big adventure from Smith Street, I really loved. 
that's a really awesome memory. I also, another event, it wasn't at FO, but it was run by FO, was a information night we did. It was called From Muckety to Melbourne, and it was at the Northgate Town Hall, and the town hall was just completely packed out. It was fantastic. It was such a good event, and it was Melbourne really coming out to support such a big issue. When I first came across Friends of the Earth, I was probably, a, I think I was a student at RMIT in Melbourne, you know, finding my feet as a young activist and um, and stumbled across the FO building and some people that worked at FO through the bookshop and food co-op. And um, we were campaigning against a gold mine at Lake Cow in New South Wales and FO, you know, embraced the campaign and took us on as a collective. When I moved back to Melbourne a bit later on, a couple of years later, again, I met some really awesome people, uh, Friends of the Earth, and... Um, heard more and more about the anti-nuclear campaign and um yeah and just i suppose liked the you know the environment and the people and just seeing the way that um that friends of the earth works with such integrity and you know works at a at a grassroots level and you know really takes that position behind traditional owners instead of kind of in front which i really liked and respected that after living and working in communities in New South Wales. That, that was, you know, just a really great way to campaign. That was Cap Beaton first and then Mia Pepper speaking about their reflections working on anti-nuclear campaigns at Friends of the Earth. That's all we have time for on the Radioactive Show this week. I am Anya. You've been listening to 3CR's Radioactive Show, produced in the studios of 3CR Melbourne and broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network. (laughs) 